We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today on The Timeline, goodbye Manu, hello to new rules, and the Pacific Division Roundup. Go! We are gathered here today to say goodbye to Manu Ginobili, the Argentinian who brought flopping to the NBA, the Eurostepper who's not even from Europe, the man who frustrated Suns fans time and time again. The San Antonio Spurs will now be without Tony, without Tim, and without Manu. And although the rivalry ended years ago, the final chapter has just now been written. Goodbye, Emmanuel Ginobili, you flopping bastard. Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike Vigil. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Mike. I'm so fed up with August. <laughs> I'm yeah, just... I'm I'm ready for it to end. It's really the worst sports month there is. Uh, some people yeah, are seriously. happy about football coming back, but it's preseason football. It's like literally the worst football you can watch. Uh, teams are just giving up. They're just pretending to play football at this point. It's not even real. And then baseball, of course, baseball is going on. Nobody really cares about baseball under 35 years old anymore, I think. So that's that's what it is. And the NBA is in its dog days. There's no There's no real news. But there is some news, I guess. Manu Ginobili is retiring. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, it's great. I mean, it's it's about time, right? <laughs> We've been waiting for it for a long time. 
Uh, look, the sad part about August, right, is that there's so little news that all I've seen on Reddit and Twitter for the past three days are old regurgitated highlights of Manu Ginobili, who in his prime probably wasn't even better than Goran Dragic was for the Suns in 2014, and yet is being <laughs> like, you know, hailed as this first ballot Hall of Fame player, which he is because of all the rings and and the international resume that he has. But but yeah, I mean, I'm I. I was ready to see Manu Ginobili uh, leave the NBA. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it is kind of weird because if you think about it, Tim Duncan retired. And within a few years, there's no Tim Duncan, no Tony Parker, and no Manu Ginobili in Spurs uniforms. And surprisingly, no Kawhi Leonard. So in a sense, the Spurs as we know it are over. And and to Mm -hmm. expect that when Tim Duncan retired, I think, I, I don't think many people did. Obviously, of all the three of them, Manu Ginobili, it was obvious that sort of he was coming to an end. He's old. I mean, really, if you just break it down to that, he's old. But the idea that the Spurs have none of Tony, Tim, Manu, Kawhi, or even Danny Green is kind of weird. It's a team with DeMar DeRozan and, uh, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge. You can't really expect Greg Popovich to stick around much longer. I think that his time is probably coming to an end in the next few years, uh, I would expect. What do you think? Well, yeah, it must be. I mean, who would have thought that Pop would outlast all of these guys on the Spurs in the first place, right? Uh, and we've talked about it before, I think. I, I guess it's a little surprising almost that he's still will, willing to do this gig with the kind of ragtag group that San Antonio has currently put together. That being said, DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge are still very good players, and I'm sure they're going to have a, a strong season and make a playoff push. It's just... Yeah, they're really not the same team that they were, and uh, their future is very much in question. Right. You know, it is kind of interesting, Manu's career, just sort of how it's gone, because he was sort of the guy that uh, frustrated Greg Popovich. There's a really, really great Zach Lowe article about Manu Ginobili coming to the NBA and just how people sort of talked about him when he first came over and how he didn't really listen to Popovich in a lot of ways and 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 Greg Popovich just sort of had to accept it um but the opinions that people had on him early in his career everyone hated him because of the flopping there wasn't a lot of flopping in the NBA there first of all you couldn't really flop in the 90s because uh players would roast you they would just kill you for it um so it kind of came with Manu and and when he came to the NBA he was really one of the first floppers that people would talk about even though Reggie Miller kind of did it before that but he was sort of untouchable in that sense but over the course of his career in a sense I think he may have been the most popular San Antonio Spur at least to Spurs fans Tim Duncan although a winner and a really great player was boring uh, in all ways and it wasn't just personality wise he was boring to watch play basketball Manu Ginobili was actually pretty exciting to watch. I secretly like to watch Manu highlights, although I haven't been watching him in this last week because I just I am kind of looking forward to that era of Spurs being over. Uh, but he was fun to watch, and I think that made Spurs fans really enjoy him. So to see sort of the rest of the NBA fans sort of turning on him as well in the positive way and saying, yeah, oh, you know what? I really like Manu now. And, you know, everyone kind of talking about how much they love him. I guess it kind of shows you how NBA Twitter and NBA Reddit are young. They're young people, people who maybe don't remember when the average NBA fan really hated Ginobili. <laughs> well, and it's not just Ginobili. It's kind of the Spurs in general. I mean, post-2007, 2008, 
basically after Bruce Bowen and, and Robert Ory left the team, the Spurs completely redid their image. And by the time they drafted Kawhi Leonard and they were back in the finals in uh, 2013 and 2014, and there was all this talk about the beautiful game, they, I mean, you know, NBA fans, whether it be in the media or uh, fans on Twitter and Reddit, as you were just talking about, uh, kind of love the Spurs. And there was this uh, uh, league-wide respect for them as a franchise. But, you know, you go back five, ten years before that, and and it wasn't just Suns fans who hated them. I mean, they, there were plenty of reasons to dislike the Spurs back in their heyday in the mid-2000s. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that any team or even individual players have benefited more from the villain LeBron narrative or that storyline that sort of came out after the decision. The Spurs were kind of the NBA darlings. I guess you can kind of say Dirk Nowitzki uh, benefited from it as well, but that sort of that run of the Spurs losing with that incredible Ray Allen shot and coming back and then defeating uh, the Miami Heat, absolutely dismantling them, to be honest. It was a pretty amazing series the way they played. Uh, the narrative really switched on them that year. Everyone kind of loved the Spurs all of a sudden, the beautiful game Spurs. You know, the thing that I hate the most is the beautiful game Spurs. And yes, <laughs> it was beautiful. They, they they were doing some amazing things, but this, this sort of concept that the Spurs invented the beautiful game is, is, is what I hate. Because first of all, you can go back to at least the 1980s Celtics. Let's just at least start there. The 1980s Celtics did that exact same thing. They, the Spurs weren't doing something that was sort of brand new, this idea of moving the ball, passing, and shooting. That's, that's been around for a long time. And yes, they shot more threes, but every team was shooting more threes at that time. It's just sort of the uh, evolution of the NBA, that the shots get further and further away from the basket as it, as it goes. But I just really hated the way people talked about that team. You and know, now it's, it's, it's funny. interesting. I don't, we, sorry to cut you off. It's just kind of funny because I've heard the argument that you just used turned on its head and used against the Suns before, too. I mean, have you not heard people say, I hate the way that everyone talks about the seven seconds or less Suns and how Mike D'Antoni was so revolutionary? I've heard a lot of people say Mike D'Antoni really wasn't revolutionary. He was just taking things that uh, coaches like Don Nelson did before him. And, and oh, you could say, I knew you were going to say Don Nelson. Well, exactly, but you could, say, <laughs> you could say the same thing. Evolution of the game. Game got quicker. Pace picked up. More threes. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people have discredited D'Antoni in that way in the past. Well, they're right about the fast breaks. Don Nelson coached his team to run and run and run and run. But what they don't mention is that every team in the 80s did that as well. It's just sort of what the NBA was in the 80s. So, yes, they're right that shooting quick in the shot clock, uh, running off of makes, grabbing the ball and running immediately on fast breaks, no offensive rebounds, kind of that that sort of... Uh, look, that did exist before the Suns, but the way that the Suns shot threes didn't really exist before that. And the way they used big men, maybe were forced to because we had no good centers, was different than any other team had previously as well. And the way that they used Steve Nash, and I know this is an argument that nobody really has to have because this is Suns fans that are listening to this podcast after all, and they all know uh, we all have this argument time and time again, but but you're you're right that argument has been used against the Suns as well. But it's you know, it's because it's the Spurs that it really gets on my nerves, I guess. One more thing about Manu before sort of moving on. I just have to ask you. Take a guy like Leandro Barbosa instead of Manu Ginobili, drop him on the Spurs for the entire decade of the 2000s. 
first of all, don't you think he would put up similar production because he did for his career? Second of all, do you think he's a hall considered a Hall of Fame player? And what does that say about Manu's legacy? If they win the same number of titles, then yes. I mean, and is J.R. Smith, is, is J.R. Smith, is Jamal Crawford, is Lou Williams, is any sixth man probably capable of doing... I mean, I, mean, I think the... Okay, the clearest... I'm coming off as a Manu hater here. Probably deservedly mm -hmm. so. I like it. <laughs> now, I, I think what's reasonable is the 2004 Olympic gold medal, um, beating that disastrous... <laughs> yeah. U.S. team that only took uh, bronze that year in Athens. Mm -hmm. I think that really works in Manu's favor. But other than that, as an actual player, I mean, the thing I opened up this episode with, saying that he was never better than 2014 Dragic, he wasn't. Manu's best season, he averaged something like 19.5 points per game, 4.5 rebounds, 4.5 assists on above average efficiency. But, you know, nothing amazing, no amazing defense to speak of. I really think you could make a case that just about any great sixth man of the past 10 or 15 years, whoever we're talking about, whether it's Barbosa, uh, Lou Williams, J.R. Smith, Jamal Crawford, you drop them on that Spurs team, give them the longevity, because that's something that Manu definitely has uh, to his advantage, uh, and, and they'd be in the Hall of Fame as well. I'm going to throw a curveball at you now that you mentioned this, because you brought up J.R. Smith. And in the last few weeks, Jackie McMullen, the amazing NBA writer, uh, actually, I guess she writes about multiple sports, but mostly the NBA, has written a series of articles on mental health and NBA players. And the articles have sort of ranged from uh, how teams view mental health in players or how the players view mental health themselves, how mental health has sort of affected them individually. Of course, Kevin, Kevin Love has talked about it. DeMar DeRozan has talked about it. Depression or, um, yeah, it's mostly, to be honest, it's mostly about depression. Um and sort of what's been kind of interesting about it is thinking about how teams view mental health for players. And what I mean about that is there's a weirdly a advantage when a team is capable of overcoming players' inability to have that sort of mental advantage. So... I want to be more specific so that you know what I'm talking about here. The Warriors signed JaVale McGee and Nick Young. JaVale McGee and Nick Young have failed at almost every team that they were on before that. But because of the infrastructure on the Warriors, because of the players that already existed on that team, they were sort of able to overcome that in a way that other teams would be or have been unable to in the past. And when you mention a player like J.R. Smith going to the Spurs, it's a really interesting thought experiment because maybe J.R. Smith is just sort of difficult to, to make. Uh, you know, he's had a few good seasons. I'm not saying he's a terrible player, but he's he's one of those guys that has mental uh, issues sort of focusing, I guess is a better way to put it without coming off as insulting to him. And you do wonder, J.R. Smith on the Spurs... Would that infrastructure and would that sort of, the, the players that were on there, would they be able to turn him into a player like Manu Ginobili or maybe even better than Manu Ginobili? It, it, you you kind of have to assume that, yeah, that, that, that could happen. That's definitely possible. And, and, and it's interesting to me to look at it as saying these teams now have an, maybe a quantifiable advantage in working with players that don't work on other teams because of that infrastructure. And and now that now that scouts are sort of more willing to talk about 
how they view uh, mental issues in the scout the scouting process. I don't know. It's just an interesting conversation. I, you know, I, I I do wonder. Yeah, I I wonder as well. I mean, it's the whole. It's why the Suns need to reboot their culture, right? Because we're currently in that group of teams that you <laughs> would not consider to have yeah. the proper infrastructure to sort of no. nurture some of these tougher players. I mean, it certainly didn't work out. With yeah, absolutely. Pieces like Gerald Green, the Morris twins that we've had recently, they didn't exactly succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Archie Goodwin didn't exactly succeed in this system. So, uh, again, I've been talking about it all season, but this is why the hire of Igor is so important. Um, this is why I think the addition of a guy like James Jones into the front office uh, was so important. Trevor Ariza. Trevor Ariza, of course, if we're talking about the actual roster itself. Uh, and so hopefully we continue to make some positive strides. Yeah, and a lot of the Spurs players, they give the credit to Tim Duncan more than they talk about Greg Popovich. So it, you know, having a guy that's really bought in on the floor matters a lot too. So hopefully a guy like Trevor Ariza and then Devin Booker has shown uh, to be that kind of guy who really buys in. So... Um, so now we're in a new era of Spurs, and who knows, maybe maybe another rivalry is around the corner, but I just don't know that the Spurs are meant to have sustained success in the way that they have in the past anymore without any of those four four guys now. And we'll see what they look like a few years from now when Greg Popovich likely retires. Now, we have some more news. Let's talk about the NBA rule changes. So the NBA is thinking about changing some rules uh, for the upcoming season. There's a couple that I want to talk about. Actually, let's talk about all three because I have I have a kind of a take on all three of them. So the first one is after an offensive rebound, if the offensive team gets the rebound, uh, instead of resetting the shot clock to 24 seconds, they're, they're planning on resetting it to 14 seconds. Now, I really like this rule for a lot of reasons, but Sam, what do you think about it? Yeah, I like it. Um, it's taking it straight from FIBA rules. Uh, and I, I have no problems with it. I've seen some, again, I think it's August is making everyone crazy. Just like they want to latch onto things and have really strong opinions. And I've seen a lot of people saying this will ruin the NBA and, and things like that. And it's really not <laughs> actually, okay. So nylon calculus did a fantastic article on exactly this, yes. studying the math behind it. And what they did is they analyzed all of the possessions that take place in the NBA after an offensive rebound and looking at the average time to see how many possessions are actually going to be impacted by this new rule. Uh, and if you look at it, it's actually really interesting. It's, it's sort of like, uh, to throw out a math term, they, they have this graph here, and it's almost like this log normal distribution of uh, and what I mean by that is the vast majority of possessions coming after an offensive rebound are within those first few seconds, which makes sense because so many come right on putbacks, uh, which is just a fraction of a second is all it takes. Uh, or guys who grab an offensive rebound maybe come down with it, uh, take one dribble, and then instantly go back up. Maybe they immediately pass out to an open shooter. But the point is, is it's not taking that much time. And only 6% of all of these possessions after an offensive rebound actually last longer than 14 seconds, which is, you know, when this new rule would kick in between, you know, setting it back to 14 seconds instead of 24. Only 6%, which the Nylon Calculus article estimates to be impacting about one possession per game uh, in in any NBA game in the regular season between two Mm -hmm. teams. One possession. That's all we're talking about here. So, you know, to anyone who's freaking out about this, about how this is ruining the league and how you know they're making these 
huge changes. Uh, I mean, if you're more of a basketball conservative, yeah, yeah, you're wrong. It's one possession per game. You're just, just wrong. It's it's not going to have much of an impact at all. I think it's a neat little rule. Um, I don't think that the rule book should be toyed, you know, just for the sake of it. But I, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think this was a, a good rule change, and we're not going to see it come into play all that much. Well, I think actually we should talk about when those possessions happen. So let's say it is one percent, or maybe one about one possession per game. The only time that an offensive team gets a rebound and then holds the ball is at the end of the clocks. And I think that this is actually what makes it kind of interesting. So a lot of those times when those possessions come are likely at the end of a quarter or at the end of a half because in a lot of, in most games, I would say the game is decided at the end of the fourth quarter and the offensive team maybe doesn't need to to, to roll it out and do that. But so if a team gets the rebound, with 25 seconds left on the clock, for example, they can no longer hold the ball and then shoot with one second left. It gives the other team another offensive possession. So that is where I think a lot of people have an issue with it because they're saying, well, uh, it's not rewarding the hustle for that offensive rebound in the same way anymore. But that also makes the game faster and it makes the game more interesting. And I think that is (laughs) better, ultimately. I mean, really... Yes, we all are all about competition and competitiveness, but ultimately the NBA is for our entertainment and we want to make the most entertaining product there is. And I think that this could actually make it more entertaining. So while I understand the other side of that, they say, well, why aren't we rewarding these guys? The fact is that most offensive rebounds, just picture Tristan Thompson right now. Um, he's not catching the ball, holding it in the post, passing out to LeBron James for them to hold the clock. He's tipping it up on the rim a whole bunch of times to try and get in. That's what most offensive rebounds are, and that's not going to be affected at all. So I'm not really worried about that. Um, and and to be honest, these rules have to be voted on. So we'll see if it's even something that uh, that happens, to be honest. So there's another one, though, and it is related to the clear path rule. And the way it works now is if an offensive player uh, is running down on a fast break and there's no defensive player in front of him and a defensive player runs up and fouls them to stop the fast break from behind, then the offensive team gets two shots and the ball instead of just getting the two shots or just getting it out of bounds. The proposed rule change says a personal foul, if a personal foul is committed on an offensive player during his team's transition scoring opportunity... Uh, then it can actually be considered a clear path rule from my understanding of it. And what that means is that those intentional fouls on fast breaks of, I call it the Jared Dudley foul (laughs) because Jared Dudley tends to foul players when the fast break is already given up, but maybe it won't be a clear path because there's another player back and they foul on purpose. It seems like they're trying to eliminate that. And I'm, I'm all for this too. What do you think about it? Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. I think also it's funny calling it the Jared Dudley because really, Jared Dudley this last year probably knew whenever he came in the game that he was only getting 10 minutes and that that meant he had six fouls to use if he needed them on a fast break. But yeah, I think it's a good thing. I think the league probably wants to see more of those uh, breakaway opportunities because they're super exciting, get the crowd amped. Uh, I think both of these real changes that we're talking about sort of are, are pushing the league in that direction, right? Trying to continue to entice new young viewers into the sport by, uh, you know, making uh more opportunities for highlight plays yeah i i agree with that and and, and just 
it's also not a basketball play to intentionally foul someone on a fast break just to stop the fast break because you don't feel like running back and playing defense. Yeah, I would do that all the time in pickup games if I had refs. So I understand why players are doing it, but it's just not basketball. So I, I hope they start to eliminate plays like that. That just It's not basketball. It's just being lazy. Um, and the last rule change, and, and it's really not a big deal, uh, this rule change, but I, I just wonder if we can figure out what triggered it. They are potentially expanding the definition of a hostile act that triggers an instant replay to include interactions instead of just player to player, but also player to referee, player to coach, or player to fan. So any player interaction with the referee, coach, or fan can trigger what's considered a hostile act and result in a replay to potentially eject players. What I was trying to figure out, though, is I can't remember any real explosive interaction between a player or referee player or coach or player and a fan in this last year do you remember anything like that happening like why would they even consider doing this not in the last year i mean the Suns have had plenty of explosive interactions between players and coaches (laughs) in the past few years you you want to talk about that you think think? you say it they would review markeith morris (laughs) throwing a towel at jeff hornacek's face because it's his own coach does that count as a hostile act it's exactly what I'm thinking. I don't know. Um, would the Suns <laughs> want a race to, to that joke? Yeah, there was, there was a race to that joke. We're running out of material. It's the two of us fighting yeah. with each other. You guys may have noticed, by the way, that we don't have a guest this week. I, I think it was. It's been like a month since it's been just the two of us on an episode. So, as you can tell, our chemistry is getting stale. But <laughs> uh, the last hostile interaction between a player and a referee that really crossed a line was rondo uh and the referee that he called a terrible terrible word do you do you remember this happening yeah i remember that i mean i i couldn't give you an exact date without looking it up it's i think i know look i think player referee uh there's a lot of tension there in that relationship um that's probably Mm -hmm. only been building for the past year or two um, I don't think this was necessarily triggered by a specific event, though. I think it's perfectly possible yeah. that they're just trying to expand uh, what instant replay can do for them to cover more bases, cover more situations. Um, I think that's really all there is to it. When we come back, we surveyed the fan bases of all Pacific Division teams. Hear those results and more. And now, Ryan McDonough after a few beers. Uh, he was first on our board coming into the workout, and then he blew us away in the workout, which I think you guys probably gathered from my tone. I, I'm usually pretty stoic, but like, I was watching the workout like, this is incredible, you know, so, um, after that, like, the bar was so high that, you know, obviously we, we kept going through the process and, um, you know, we didn't have, you know, the medical and things like that that are important at that time. But he came in since he went first and, and just blew us away. said, okay, like, I don't see how anybody would do better than that because... I've been doing this 16 years, and I don't know if I've ever seen anybody do, do better than that.
We surveyed the fan bases of every Pacific Division team, Family Feud style, top 100 answers on the board. We found out how they feel about their offseason, who their most important addition was, and how they feel about the Phoenix Suns offseason. We play teams from the Pacific Division 16 times next season, so we thought it was important to talk about these teams specifically. Sam, how did we do against Pacific Division teams last season? It was bad. No surprise, guys. It was bad when we played anyone, right? But it was was bad against the Pacific Division uh, last year, too. Did you guys know we went 0-4 against the Los Angeles Clippers last season? We lost all four games by double digits, including that one game, the third game of the season that got Earl Watson uh, canned. We lost that one by 42. Yeah, maybe we should thank them. Yeah, maybe we should thank thank the Clippers. Well, I'm I'm I have some strong opinions about the Clippers with what they're doing this year. We'll get to them later. But uh yeah, overall we went 4 and 12 against the Pacific Division last year. 0 and 4 against the Warriors, 0 and 4 against the Clippers, 1 and 3 against the Lakers and 3 and 1 against the Kings. Uh 4 and 12 obviously not going to cut it this year. I think we'll talk a uh, little bit more later about our predictions for if it's going to get any better this year. Um, but our average point differential in those 16 games was negative 11 points compared to a, a average differential of negative 9.4 was the average amount we lost by on the season. So negative 11 against the Pacific Division, we actually performed worse against the division than we did against the rest of the league, which isn't too yeah. surprising if you think about it. I mean, just given that uh, the Warriors are in our division, but then yeah, you think about all these all teams need. potentially getting stronger, so we have to talk about it. I mean, without that 40-whatever-point loss to the Clippers, I'm sure that differential would be drastically different as well. Yeah, so true. I'm sure that affected it. Um, so some of the questions we asked, let's start with uh, the one that we sent out to our fan base, the Phoenix Suns fan base. So uh, what we did is we asked teams to rate the Phoenix Suns offseason from 1 to 100, with 1 being the worst and 100 being the best. And out of the first 100 responses we got back from the Phoenix Suns fans, the average number from 1 to 100 was 77. So that's sort of a, a, I don't know, you could look at it as like a C plus, I guess. Is that what that is? I haven't been in school in a while. Yeah, yeah, that's a C plus. And that's a relatively good rating, I would say, right? Because you can do, if you're under 50, you consider it bad. If you're close to 100, obviously you'd be really high on it. And we'll talk about some of these other teams in the Pacific Division and how optimistic they, they were about their offseason. This could be considered kind of low for a team that had the number one pick, though. And I think that's likely because of the sort of big talk that McDonough was doing about free agency. And then we ended up with Trevor Reza, do you do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I agree with your assessment. That's what it is. It's all about expectations. I think yeah. on paper the Suns had a really good off season, um, but I think given what the Lakers did and what the Warriors did, coupled with the fact that McDonough kind of talked up a big game, not that we had the cap space exactly to acquire like a big star or anything, but just there there were all these rumors generated by admittedly people like us uh, that the Suns could maybe push for more this offseason at least a little bit more and maybe that's what lends to uh the fan base only feeling a 77 and not something more in like the mid or high 80s or or even above that but a 77 it still indicates to me that the sun's fan base is pretty optimistic about uh what we've done and and is feeling good going into the season i mean that that means the average person thinks we had a good offseason for sure yeah average sun's fan now 
I just feel like this is a good point to point out that uh, I said that the Suns should sign Trevor Ariza to a one-year high-dollar amount contract to preserve our cap space for a future offseason, and uh, that's exactly what they did. (laughs) So, well, you're right. People like us um, did talk a a higher game, Um, not me specifically. I I don't feel like I've bragged about that enough. Maybe I should talk about it more on the podcast. I don't know. I I feel like you're bragging more than enough right now. Yeah, you're right. I'm just going to make a note to bring it up later in the podcast again. Um, The next question that we asked was, who is the most important addition that your team added this offseason? So this was asked to Suns fans again, and guess what? It was Aiton. DeAndre Aiton. Not Rashawn Um, Holmes, surprisingly. No, surprisingly, yeah. I I, I guess not Rashawn Holmes or... uh, Losing Jared Dudley, I guess, is an example. But uh, Aiton was the number one choice by a lot. But there were some other responses. The the next highest pick after DeAndre Aiton was actually Igor, the coach. And I think that's a good one. Those are those are perceptive, uh, you know, perceptive fans. I think that's a, that's a good point. Uh, a good coach matters a lot, and and we don't know how good he is, but we have high hope. Um, some of the other choices, Trevor Ariza was picked a few times. I think Mikhail Bridges was just picked once. Um, and I believe one person said Devin Booker's contract, and that's probably the right answer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could make an argument for it. Yeah, it was definitely one of the most important <laughs> things. The, it was probably the most important thing we did this offseason. You can make an argument for that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, I don't think so. it, was ever- it guarantees so, that he's going to be here. Yeah, true. No. I was never worried about it. But the last question in the Phoenix Suns uh, survey was, do you believe the Suns got better or worse this offseason and uh, significantly better uh, as far as the responses go? 96% of people picked better. Um, two people picked about the same and two people picked worse. How? And I'm going to track down those people because we need to bring have a them on the pod. Jeez, yeah, like, come on. How are we getting worse? Meet me in Mesa. Meet me in Mesa. It's, it's going down. Um it's, there's no way. I think there's no way the Suns got worse. And if you think we got worse, then you probably weren't paying attention to the players that we played last season. It was pretty bad uh, in a lot of cases. So that's a good, I think that's a good representative sample um, from Reddit and Twitter. This is for Suns fans. It was both Reddit and Twitter. So thank you to everyone that, that uh, participated in that survey. Uh, it is kind of interesting. I would say Suns fans are relatively optimistic at this point. Um, and hopefully that remains in the future. But let's talk about some of the other teams. So let's go into the only team that I can say the Suns are for sure better than in this upcoming season. And that I is, wouldn't say that. <laughs> that is the Sacramento Kings. Oh, I'm interested in hearing what you think about that. But let's just go over quickly what they did this offseason. Uh, they had the number two pick, so number one and number two pick are in the Pacific Division this coming year. Those games are going to be interesting just for that alone because they're both big men because they drafted Marvin Bagley, uh, another center. They also traded Garrett Temple for Deontay Davis they, and Ben McLemore uh, for cash. So they got Ben McLemore back on their team, from my understanding of that. They signed Nemanja Bielitsa. Actually, I pronounced that better than I thought I would. And they signed... You did. The, you got it right. Yeah. And they signed the tiny point guard, Yogi Ferrell. Uh, and that's for two years. Bielitsa for three years. Um, not a lot of changes for them, to be honest. They uh, they still have uh, De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, Willie Cauley-Stein, Harry Giles. That's a good player that could be pretty good. And somehow they have Amon Shumpert. I don't remember this happening. 
<laughs> at all. But Iman Shepard's on the team, and then Kosta Kufis. Um, those are the main Bogdan players. Bogdanovich as well. Bogdan Bogdanovich, yeah, that's probably actually he might be one of their better players uh, oh, next absolutely. year. So we surveyed them as well. Let me bring up their survey results here. Um, the poor Kings fan base. It yeah, really reflects Kings... in this these survey results. Is <laughs> how they've been burned so many times. Mm-hmm. So on you remember the Suns fans chose about seventy seven uh, at rating their team off season one to hundred. Kings fans were out of all these surveys, they were the least optimistic. So they actually rated their off season at fifty two. Uh, and that means that a large percentage of them think that they got worse and, 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 and we'll sort of actually quantify that in a second, but that's a really bad rating. And that's for the team that got the number two pick. That seems a little pessimistic. Don't you think? Well, they wanted Doncic. I think the majority, I mean, the, we're talking, we posted this on the Sacramento Kings subreddit. They had this whole inside joke going on before the draft about there being a prophecy that we would select Aiton and they would select Doncic. And then they got devotched. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think look, I feel bad for that that fan base. Not that I not that I think um we're necessarily gonna be so much better than them this upcoming season, but I think that's why you see the potential uh sort of negativity uh from Kings fans. It's just uh they're not high on the Bagley move. Well, what's funny about that is 54% said they got better. Uh, 41% said they stayed about the same. And then 5% said they got worse. So I, it's a pretty high percentage of people who said they stayed about the same. I'm guessing those people were sort of putting it at about that 50. Uh, out of 1 to 50, they were probably rated yeah, at about but, 50. And and here's the thing. like When 52% in a vacuum, um, or sorry, uh, 52 out of 100 in a vacuum for how they feel about their offseason doesn't seem that bad, right? Like it's technically above average, but it's just when you're surveying homers because every team yeah. subreddit is going to be like right. that, that just feels really low for 41% of the fan base to say that they stayed the same. Usually you're expecting every fan base to almost unanimously say that they got better uh, pretty much every offseason, maybe with the exception of one right. or two, because that's just how the NBA works. That's just how fandom works. So, right. yeah, the Kings aren't aren't that high on their team. And s- still, even with that, of course, they pretty much all picked <laughs> Marvin Bagley as the main addition. Uh, two people said Harry Giles is healthy now, which I liked. Um, one person said Mo Bagels, which is a great name for <laughs> Marvin Bagley. <laughs> uh, pretty funny. Uh, so there's actually uh, quite a few people said Harry Giles, more than two. Um, and I think that that's a good point. Harry Giles was a really... That's that's a prospect that was really highly touted until he was injured and had a pretty serious injury. Um, one or two people picked Bielitsa, surprisingly. Bielitsa's pretty good. I mean, I get it. But, I mean, if that's the best player you added in your offseason, that's rough. That's definitely rough. Um, so One of those people might have just been Bogdan Bogdanovic. <laughs> just happy to get another Serbian on the team. Who knows? Yeah, well, I'm sure. Uh, one or two people picked Yogi as well, which is kind of fun. It's not true. Uh, because no way is he the best player they added. Marvin Bagley is going to be better than him, but it is kind of fun that they like him enough to put him in there. But we also measured how Sacramento Kings fans feel about the Phoenix Suns offseason, and this is interesting because they rated their own at 52, but they rated the Suns 67, <laughs> so yeah. significantly higher, uh, which I I feel bad for them <laughs> because generally – 
what we've been doing and you know sam and i kind of talked briefly about these results before the podcast and i said this is an interesting way to measure each fan base's rose-colored glasses because the suns definitively had a good offseason whether or not you like the suns they had a good offseason um and i think the kings fans of all of all the teams recognize that uh, they probably wanted Aiton or Doncic, so they're looking at the team that got eight and said of course they had a great offseason uh so they they said that, but we also asked, do you believe the Suns got better or worse this offseason? 85% of them said better, uh, 13% said about the same, and 2% said worse, and I'm going to track down those two people as well and find out where they live and have a conversation with them. Uh, friendly one. The Suns, a friendly one, of course, a debate, strong a undertones. barbershop debate. Um, I'm sorry, Kings fans. <laughs> well, here's something I want to talk about. So we, we spent so much... Um, when we talked with Max from the Seven Seconds or Less podcast last week, talking about the Suns over under, uh, the Kings over under is at twenty five and a half wins. How how do you feel about that going into the season for this team? I mean, that sounds about right. right? Like it's hard to. S- <laughs> well, you said defi- you said definitively worse than the Suns, so they're set at twenty five and a half. The Suns are set at twenty eight yeah. and a half. I, I, look, I guess like I think the, the Suns are better than the. I certainly think we had a better off season, and I think we have a better team. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I've been burned so many times in, in the past five years or so that I'm not quite willing to bet. Like maybe no, Sam, come I'm on, done. no, come on, <laughs> no way. You never <laughs> if know. They added Trevor Reza, no, if they if they added Trevor Reza, DeAndre, and then Mikhail Bridges. First of all, Mikhail Bridges might be better than Marvin Bagley alone. There's a chance. Yeah. Uh, no, I think and, and, here's here's how I feel about Marvin Bagley. It's not. I'm not saying that the Kings are going to be good, but they could struggle their way to 30 wins, and the Suns could win like 28 games, right? Like, isn't that a possibility? Well, let's just no. <laughs> I don't think that's no? possible. You don't that think they, that's a possibility? I don't think it's possible they win. If I had to bet, if there was a way to bet, I guess there is, but. Uh, individually who would have more wins it's gonna be the suns i don't think there's any yeah, way no, the Kings I, have more. I'm, I'm agreeing with you i think there's a very good chance that we are going to be better than the kings but you just can't say definitively that we're going to be better than me, anyone given the consistent pile of dog shit basketball product we put on the floor last I year i understand i i understand that but is there a team in the nba maybe besides the hawks that are going to be worse than the kings uh no well probably not no <laughs> yeah i don't see it i think they're the worst team in the nba maybe the second worst team in the nba i think that the hawks are clearly trying to lose and the kings are not i think they might actually owe their pick to the celtics if it falls into a certain range i don't know that they own their pick next year uh, actually i don't think they do so i i think they're going to be trying to win much more than the hawks and that alone means that they probably will have a better record than the hawks but i don't know that they're 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 one of the worst teams in the league, definitively, and I I don't think that the Suns are anymore. I, I maybe it's my rose colored glasses, but look for the for I the just, Kings. I think it all hinges. They're in a really weird situation, right? Because they've got this conglomeration of young talent, but a lot of that young talent isn't even all that young. Like Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich at this point in their careers, both around the age of twenty five, um, are pretty solid. They're pretty solid basketball players, but. They're not exactly prospects because they're that old. So the question is if they can take the next step into actually being kind of go-to scoring wings for this team. If the answer to that is yes, 
I don't see why they couldn't struggle their way to 30 wins at least. They're still not going to have a great offense. But also, uh, you know, I want to quickly bring up the topic of De'Aaron Fox. Uh, I'm curious for your thoughts on De'Aaron Fox because the way I feel about it is any Suns fan who's not willing to give up on Josh, or any Suns fan who is very high on Josh Jackson currently is not allowed to then turn around and say De'Aaron Fox is a bust. <laughs> because if you look at uh, here, I have the stats right here because I actually want to make this comparison. Um, not that I'm trying to be low on Josh, Jack- Josh Jackson. I'm very high on Josh Jackson, but I'm saying look at their player efficiency rating. De'Aaron Fox, 11.2. Josh Jackson, 11.8. True shooting. Both of them were at 48%. That's abysmal. Uh, win shares, both of them were in the negatives. Value over replacement player, uh, De'Aaron Fox was at a negative 1.2. Josh Jackson was at a negative 1.1. They were equally had really awful rookie campaigns. And so I think there is potential, though, looking at De'Aaron Fox as a basketball player, not that he was efficient last year, but that he does still have the sort of skill set and makings of a, a decent starting point guard in this league a couple years down the line. Um, so, you know, I'm not ready to give up on him there either. I'm not particularly high on Bagley. I guess what I'm trying to say here is not that I think the Kings have a great future. I think their future is pretty bleak, but we are not definitively better than them in all sorts of parallel universe combinations that you could think of. Well, here's first off, I like De'Aaron Fox, and I think that he probably has the most potential, even including Bagley, of any of the players on their team. Although Bagley, at the end of the season, that could surpass him. But Josh Jackson is probably the player with the third best potential on our team i think just from that alone if you're comparing them uh you know they're sort of number one player to our third that alone i shows kind of where they're at compared to where we're at and i I know it's like we're saying we're better than potentially the worst team in the league so it's not something to brag about but what here's what i'll say and then we'll wrap up the kings we play them four times next year what do you think our record against the kings will be well better be three wins because we're not winning many against the rest of the teams so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> better than four and 12 better be three and one I well would, we were four and oh i would pick three and one we could be four and oh could be mm-hmm. that's what i I'm think three for. and one is fair bagley will have three one, and one is fair bagley will have one 30.10 rebound performance uh to lead the kings to their one victory in the other three games where we win he'll shoot about 30 percent from the field and score maybe 30 points combined <laughs> Yeah, I think those are the types of games that DeAndre Ayton's really going to get up for. So uh, we'll find out. We'll, we'll have to remember that one. The next team that we're going to go over, the Los Angeles Lakers. So they made a few moves, I think. This. Oh, I'm just kidding. It's obvious. Okay, LeBron. They, they got LeBron. Uh, they also drafted Mo Wagner, uh, Isaac Bonga. I, I'm so afraid to pronounce his name, but I'm going to go for the full name. Sviatoslav. Mikhailuk, <laughs> Svi. I think they're calling him Svi, right? Uh, yeah. It's okay, just Svi. we'll go with that. Svi and my um, book. Yeah. And they also the new additions. Well, they re-signed Contavious Caldwell Pope. They signed Rondo, Javale McGee, Lance Stevenson, and Michael Beasley. The meme team, the reality show uh, team, if you will. They have Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, Lonzo Ball. Uh, no longer have Julius Randle. Uh, Big, 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 big moves on that team. One really good one and a bunch of really not great ones, but that really good one is really, really good. How do you feel about the Lakers offseason? Well, it's been talked to death in the national media. It's not that it's a series of bad moves so much. Like I think the whole locker room circus thing is overblown. I I don't think they're going to have too much drama. Um, 
Hopefully. Any, well, not, not hopefully. Like, I don't care if they have a lot of drama and implode. That'd be fine in my book. But I just, it's really hard to look at the depth chart that people are envisioning for this team and, and like envisioning how that's going to work on a basketball court. Uh, especially if you look at their bench. I mean, if we assume they're, what do you think their starters are going to be? Is it going to be Ball, KCP, Ingram, LeBron at power forward, and then like JaVale at center? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it's going to so, be. And I think that LeBron playing center is real. That's going to yeah, happen. LeBron the the yeah, well, okay. So first of all, their interior situation is, is kind of fucked, right? I mean, it, they've got JaVale and they need Mo Wagner to step up big time um, because mm-hmm. yeah, Zubats isn't, isn't going to save no, Randall. Yeah, no Randall. So, yeah. um, but but also just like then look at the bench that leaves you with Rondo. Josh Hart had a good rookie campaign. But Stevenson, it's a lot of guys who need the ball in their hands in order to thrive, and that's those just aren't the right types of players to surround LeBron with. I just don't really see how how it's going to work all that well. Not enough. Not enough shooting. It's really interesting. It's to talk about, yeah, that's the main criticism, right? Not enough shooting. But the entire season, last season, LeBron was complaining about not having more playmakers. So he's got some playmakers now. Um, you know, Rondo, Lance Stevenson, those are those are two playmakers. He's got Lonzo Ball. Even Brandon Ingram's a pretty good passer. So we, we'll be able to see what it's like. Now, you can say that there's not enough shooting. Playing with LeBron will probably increase their shooting percentages. So the players that do shoot, like Lonzo's going to shoot better next year. Brandon Ingram's going to shoot better next year, most likely just from the defense being sucked in by LeBron's drives. Um, so that will that it's will not get even better. the one to worry about. It's just like, yeah, it's Lonzo, no, it's yeah. Rondo, it's Lance. Those guys, obviously. It's like, it's yeah. like how does Lonzo thrive playing off-ball to LeBron James? It's not something he's ever had to do even in college. Yeah, and how's it going to work? So it's going to be a really interesting experience. How's it going to work when Kuzma and LeBron share the floor? I'm actually pretty weirdly kind of excited just to see how it works just because it's like a it's almost like a thought experiment that you thought you would never see happen what happens if we surround lebron with no shooters and a bunch of good passers well let's find out um you know he still has javel mcgee and michael beasley i just can't this team is so weird but i mean let's go over the survey results the lakers are really excited about it as they should be lebron james is huge um out of one to a hundred do you think it would be 99 it's actually 89 which is a pretty good number and i think the reason that's not all the way up to 100 is because the expectations, right? We talked about it being a measure of expectations, and a lot of Lakers fans thought it would be Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James on the same team by the end of the offseason. Paul George, Or too. Paul George, yeah, all Don't three of them. Mr. Yeah. Paul George to L.A. countdown. Right. So that clearly didn't happen, and that probably affected it. But 89, I think that's the highest, uh, or it matches the highest of all the teams that we surveyed. So... That's still a pretty good look as far as that goes. And, of course, they nobody said they got worse, right? 98% said they got better. Somehow, 2% said they stayed about the same. Um, those people are, I, you know, they probably should see a doctor uh, because something's wrong. There's no way that they're about the same as last year. Um, and, of course, it's pretty straightforward who they picked as the guy that was the most important. Um, it was all LeBron. Uh, some people said the chosen one. Some people said the king. Some people said King James. There were a few clearly joke answers. Svi, Lance Stevenson, a few, <laughs> a few in there. Um, but it's very clear uh, LeBron was the biggest offseason addition. If LeBron changes teams, he's the biggest offseason addition for whatever team he goes to. That's just how it works. Um, Sam, guess which team rated the Suns offseason the worst? <laughs> I'm going to go with the Los Angeles Lakers, Mike. Oh, yeah, you're right. 
they don't like us. Um, they were surprisingly nice to me when I posted this in the subreddit. So shout out to them. I'm not going to kill them for this. I don't want them to rate our off season. Well, I want, I kind of want them to hate us and they rated it at 54, uh, which is the lowest of well, any of the teams. we here's, here's something that before we talk about all the other teams, I think needs to be addressed. When you say that the Lakers or any fan base gives us a 54, so I looked at the responses that people were giving to you in those threads you were making on these subreddits as well, and there were a surprising number of comments being like, I don't know anything about the Sun, so I didn't know what to say for the Sun, so I was just neutral, like a 50 or something, right? Because I think more so than interpreting this as other teams have it out, for the Suns, because I think as a fan base, we have this chip on our shoulder where we'd like to believe that for some reason we're hated. I don't think it's that. I think it's just ignorance of what the Suns are even doing in the first place. It's the lack of coverage. Yep. For for any Mad Men, fa- uh, Mad Men fans out there, it's like the scene in Mad Men where you've got Don Draper and Michael Ginsburg in an elevator, and Ginsburg says to Draper, uh, I feel sorry for you, and Draper says, I don't think about you at all. That's basically the Suns' relationship with the entire rest of the league right now, is we're just not even on the radar. It's not that people don't like us, it's that we're an afterthought. And so we can feel so positive about everything that has gone on with our team this offseason, but until the wins start to come, I think the expectations for us are really low. Like, Suns fans seem to want 30 to 35 wins. If we actually win 35 wins... uh or win 35 games this year, I think we're going to see a surprising number of like tweets and Reddit posts being like, whoa, did anyone see the Suns like being this good? And like, if they had talked to Suns fans about it, then obviously we would have been hyping up that opinion all season long, but like no one expects the Suns to make this much of a jump in a season. So we really just need to go out and do it. If we want any sort of exposure, um, you know, to start educating these fans of other fan bases. I got to tell you, Sam, in my notes about the Golden State Warriors survey, I have a note that says, Mad Men scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought about that exact scene. Yeah. Because it, it was mostly from Warriors fans. And why would Warriors fans think about it? But to counter, just to counteract that a little bit, I will say the two teams that I think actually have been following the Suns offseason and the Suns in general the last few years – are the Kings and the Lakers. And the reason is because out of the three Pacific teams that were rebuilding, those are the three teams, right? They, they were rebuilding. So in a lot of ways, a lot of comparisons have been drawn between the Lakers' rebuild and the Suns' rebuild. And maybe the Lakers fans don't know what happened to the Suns this offseason, but I think out of all the teams in the Pacific Division, the ones that are most likely to know what the Suns, you know, what happened to the Phoenix Suns in this offseason were the Kings and the Lakers. And the Lakers are on a different track now. It's true. They have LeBron. Things will change. Who knows what the team will even look like after the trade deadline this year? It could be completely different. But I do think that a lot of Lakers fans knew what happened. And they did rate us 65% said we got better, 27% said about the same, and, and, and 7% said worse. Um, and I expected more to say worse just because they don't want to see us succeed, I, I expect. and Or maybe some of them do. I'm, I'm sure some of them do. But they still it's overwhelmingly said that we got better. And, and although I think that's the highest percentage of any fan base saying that we stayed about the same. And, you know, I get it. They, they just have different things. They, they don't really have to think about us the same way. Um, but the Lakers, what is their over-under? Do you have that in front of you? Uh, it's 48 and a half. 
That's a that's so hard to predict. That's I wouldn't bet. Let's just say that if I were advising you to bet, I would say stay away from the Lakers line because who yeah, knows? It's so volatile. Yeah, and some people say, "Oh, I, I, can I tell you? I hate this take of people saying, oh, the the moves that they made outside of LeBron, they're so smart because they're preserving their cap space.' Well, LeBron's thirty four, and the idea of saying we're just going to punt this season and we'll see we'll see what it's like next year. Maybe we can get some good players next season. That's nuts to me. You have LeBron James on your team. And when you have LeBron James on your team, you need to try to win a championship because he doesn't have 10, 15 more years left. Maybe he's got a few as the definitive best player in the NBA, and then that goes away. He's no longer going to be that guy. And, of course, he'll still be... Uh, probably amazing and one of the best players in the NBA, but the idea of punting a season to save cap space for next year, it's just insane to me. But here's the, here's what I'll say. If they're not good, LeBron's going to rest unless they make unless they make moves. And they're not going to... I just think this could be the year where LeBron's like, all right, if this is what it's going to be, um, I'm going to take a few months off and we'll see what next season's like, if, any, if it happens at any time. And under that LA spotlight, that'll be interesting to see how people talk about it. But if I had to guess, I would say over because LeBron's on the team, but I wouldn't bet that at all. Yeah, when was the last time LeBron won less than 48 games? Like 2005, maybe? Yeah. 2004? Yeah. He was very young. Yeah. He was very young. So it's hard, it's hard to bet the under there, but I'd still be afraid to bet over at the same time. It's a really interesting yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They, they got that line right, I would say. Do the Suns win more than one game against the Lakers this year? I don't think so. I'm going to say we go two uh, and two. I just think uh, that the, the, the Suns players know how important that those those games are to Suns fans, and they kind of give it. They they give it. Let's keep track. Games. Let's keep track of these as we go along. So, what's your official prediction for the Kings? I'm going to say three and one as well, and I'm going to say two okay, and two so, for so the far, Lakers. I'm saying three and one, and then one and three. Ah, uh, fair. Which is fair. exactly exactly how we performed against those two teams last year. Yeah, I think that it'll be similar. The, the the wins against a Lakers team with LeBron will mean so much more, though. Um, so, let's move on. The Los Angeles Clippers. So, the Clippers had an interesting offseason. Um, they dressed, drafted Gilgis Alexander, uh, Jerome Robinson in a surprise pick, or a reach, some people will say, another guard. Uh, they traded Austin Rivers for Martian Gortat, and they let DeAndre Jordan go to the Mavs. They signed Mike Scott to a one-year deal. They re-signed Avery Bradley. They signed Mba Mute back to the Clippers. He played there before. And they re-signed Montrez Harrell. Uh, so, essentially, they added a few rookies. They let DeAndre go- Jordan go. Uh, replaced him with Gortat, who was not very good last year. They kept a- Avery Bradley, who's who's pretty good. And Mba Mute, a good player, assuming he gets back to his pre-injury form, which I assume he will. No reason to believe he won't. He, they have Tobias Harris. They have Danilo Gallinari. Patrick Beverly looks to be healthy. Um, you know, but Gallinari, Beverly, Bradley combined to play 38 games last year. They weren't very healthy. Um, another interesting thing they did, uh, they fired Bruce Bowen when he said something negative about Kawhi Leonard. So they clearly think they, they could sign Kawhi Leonard this upcoming uh, mm-hmm. Off season when he's a free agent again. So if they're looking at this team, they, well, I think that they look at the team and they say, well, we, we'd be really good with Kawhi Leonard. But guess what? So would every other team in the NBA. Kawhi Leonard's really good. <laughs> uh, I yeah. mean, I get what they're thinking, but but they um, they actually have a chance because they're LA is what they're thinking. Yeah. And Steve Ballmer has come out and, and he said we're not going to tank. 
Um, he's not that type of owner. So he's going to throw his money around and, and really try to make L.A. relevant through free agency. I don't know if it's going to work for them, but he's at least going to try. Would you call this a good offseason? Yes. Why? Well, should we break down the survey results first, or do you want me to go right into why I think the Clippers are being massively underrated? Well, let's look at the let's look at the two main answers. So they rated their offseason a seventy three, so relatively optimistic, one of the more optimistic ones. And they said uh, they got better. Seventy nine percent said they got better. Nineteen percent said they stayed about the same, which is one of the higher percentages of a team saying about the same. So, which is I think a fair estimation of it. I don't know how much better they got. Um, and only two percent said they got worse. And really, the most important thing they probably did is avoid paying DeAndre Jordan, right? It's just avoiding yeah. that contract entirely. And I'm guessing that's worked into how you feel about it. But but I, I, I've been looking forward to hearing how you feel about this team. Yeah, well, so, okay, the, the over-under, this is a team that won 42 games last year, first of all. The over-under is set at 35 and a half. And I think the main logic behind that is the loss of DeAndre Jordan being, you know, their best player. Well, and they had that Blake being- Griffin... They had Blake Griffin, but but they had already been away from Blake Griffin for half a season, and they performed about as well without Blake Griffin right. in the second half of last season. They were playing 500 basketball in the first half. They were playing 500 basketball without Blake Griffin. No real difference there. So I think the main justification for setting the max six and a half games in this line uh, is DeAndre Jordan. That's really what I want to address first, is that DeAndre Jordan's decline is going to be fast, and it's coming soon. Um, I know it's, it's kind of like a common thing to say that once players are on the wrong side of 30, the decline is coming. But for him, it really is true right now. Um, last year, well, first of all, his offensive efficiency plummeted. That comes with not playing with Chris Paul. I don't blame him for no longer shooting 70% from the field because he's not playing with Chris Paul as his point guard anymore. That was sort of expected. Looking at everything else, though, defense is what I really want to talk about with DeAndre. His block percentage plummeted to a career-low 2.4% last year. His win shares... Uh, his value over replacement player, other advanced stats, fell to their lowest values since the 2012-2013 season. Here's the most damning thing. Uh, NBA.com uh, Synergy Stats tracks how players uh, protect the rim inside of six feet, right? You go back to the 2015-16 season, DeAndre Jordan allowed opponents to shoot 51.9% inside of six feet. He was one of the best rim protectors in the NBA. Go one year uh, later, 2016-17, he was up to 55.5%. Still pretty good. Uh, the average for the league is around, like, uh, the average player shoots around 61-62%. So 55%, still good. Then you go back to last year. Players inside six feet shot 60% on DeAndre Jordan. That was just about 1% off from being as bad of a rim protector as Carl Anthony Towns and Ennis Cantor. By this metric, Montrez Harrell who the Clippers just re-signed to $6 million a year, was a better rim protector than DeAndre Jordan. So uh, the, f- wow. the first thing is I want to dispel with the myth that you know losing DeAndre Jordan is such a loss in the first place. I don't think Martian Gortat is the answer. Um, I think particularly because he's not the pick-and-roll finisher he once was, and he definitely can't get above the ground like DeAndre uh, Jordan can. You know He's not a rim runner. However, I think you look at all the other things that the Clippers did. They added Bob Mute. Uh, who's a 37% three-point shooter over his last three seasons. They added Mike Scott, who's a 38% shooter, uh, three-point shooter, mm-hmm. excuse me, over the last three seasons. Gives them a lot of bench depth. Then you think about something huge, which is the fact that Danilo Gallinari, Patrick Beverly, and Avery Bradley combined to play a whopping 38 games in a Clippers uniform last year. I mean, even if we assume that Gallinari is going to get his usual like 40-game injury, 
and uh, and Beverly is is going to miss some time with his uh, knee as well. Even if the three of them combine for a hundred or hundred twenty games, that's still not much, but it's a hell of a lot more than uh, thirty eight games. So you factor in that, you factor in the idea that losing Jordan really isn't that big of a deal at all. I would easily take a package of Bob Mute and Mike Scott as two role players over uh, a guy like Austin Rivers, who I don't think is a big loss either uh, when you already have a guy like Lou Williams on your team. So, I mean, all of this basically factors in. I don't even think I'm a big fan of Shea Gilgis-Alexander, but I don't even think that factors into my decision here because I don't think he's going to get a ton of playing time. Same goes for Jerome Robinson. I think you just look at this team and they are very reminiscent of the 2010 through 2012 Suns that don't really have any sort of go-to scoring options, uh, aren't going to be so great offensively, but they just have so many talented and experienced role players that there's no way they don't... And they have Gortat. And they and they have Gortat. <laughs> there's no way they don't come at least close to 500 basketball. They are going to be maybe not over 500, but I think 35 and a half is underselling them, and they're going to win about 40 games again this year. It's fair. Um, I just don't... I don't think they got better. Uh, I think that based on your result there, maybe you don't think they got much better either. Um, yeah, it's not that it's I... It's hard. I think... It, it's not them getting better necessarily. I just think... I see this like... Uh, they're not as bad as yeah, people, people think. Are, people are really quick to say that they like got a lot worse. I don't see that at all. I think it was the most interesting one as far as people saying what the most important addition was to the team. Lots of people said Shea, of course. Some people said Luke Mbamute. Um, nobody said Jerome Robinson. <laughs> uh, some people said health. Or maintaining the core, or adding depth. Uh, it's not a person, but uh, one person said two lottery players. I like that. Um, my favorite answer was just one guy that said, "We got someone?" Question mark. <laughs> yeah. Also, one person said Michael Scott, which I never really put together that Mike Scott name was Michael Scott. That's oh yeah, kind of a funny thing. That's really funny. <laughs> I never thought about that. Um, so how did they rate the Suns, though? Uh, they said uh, 65 out of 100, so they're pretty optimistic on us, I would say. Um, and they said uh, that we got better by, you know, 79% of people said we got better. Only two people said we got worse. 19% said about the same. Um, it's pretty crazy to me. I guess they're not really thinking about us much either. We're sort of in a different tier than them as well, so maybe they don't know. But anytime people say about the same or worse, it's just weird to me. It's just weird to think that we got didn't get better. Um how many wins do you think the Suns will have against the Clippers next season? Um, four times? I think there's a very good well, We did not play well against them last year. Again, 0-4. Let's go with 2-2, two and two, though. I'd like to think we can go 2-2 two and two against them yeah. uh, this year. I think 2-2 two and two is probably about what I would say there, too. So I, I agree with that. Uh, one thing kind of interesting, uh, J.J. Redick was on Pardon My Take recently, a Barstool Sports podcast, and they talked about when Blake Griffin was injured and how good the team was playing without Blake Griffin. And uh, the chemistry that they had with sort of playing a four out with DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul running pick and rolls and, and, and three shooters on, on the floor. And I just got the impression that people don't like playing with Blake Griffin. It just seems yeah. like they talked about how when Blake Griffin got back onto the team, they could never get back up to that level of playing. They did, basically, J.J. Redick said they were worse with Blake Griffin. Uh, which is a kind of an interesting thing to say. So losing Blake Griffin could potentially be almost like a benefit to them <laughs> as well in a, in, a, in a weird way. So it'll be interesting to watch them next year. Yeah, just thinking about this team more, I'm, I'm running through lineup combinations in my mind, Mike, and I, I just think you can do some interesting things. Like you can knock the fact that they don't have an amazing score on the team, but let's say you slide in Tobias Harris as your power forward. He's close to being a 20-point-per-game guy at this point. 
You compare Tobias Harris at power forward with, say, uh, Patrick Beverly at point guard, Avery Bradley at shooting guard, and Luke Bamute at small forward, and have fantastic switchable defense at the one through three positions. And then at center, go with either Gortat or Harrell. Harrell, if he takes another step up, could just be this, you know, a- amazing, energizing presence at that position. I mean, I'm not saying that they're going to be great, but they j- the Suns have a couple of players that are better. I mean, the Suns have Devin Booker and the Clippers don't have a Devin Booker, but the Clippers top down just have so many more consistent role players. There's there's just no way. There, there's no way that they don't at least play decently well this season. I think that's I think that's a fair take. Um, we'll see how well the Suns play against them, but it is kind of interesting. It sort of fed into my narrative in my mind that Blake Griffin is just a douchebag. <laughs> yeah. Well, I never had a thing against Blake Griffin, but I think what you're saying about that is right too. It seems like people just yeah, yeah they're not with. They him. just don't like him. People don't like him. Yeah. I mean, he punched his best friend. That's like one of the main <laughs> things he did in the last few years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't like him. There's one more team. And we're going to be brief on this one. The The Warriors, they, they signed DeMarcus Cousins. They retained Kevon Looney and Jordan Kevon. Bell. Kevon. Um, obviously. <laughs> Kevon. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, they were going to do these things. Um, I mean, the, the, the DeMarcus Cousins signing came completely out of the blue for most people. But it's an example of what I was talking about when we're talking about players that have uh, maybe aren't as mentally strong as other players and how... Uh, a team like the Warriors can just absorb them in a way that doesn't really affect them in the same way as, say, DeMarcus Cousins signed on the Suns. That would be a huge problem for us. It would probably cause a lot of problems. For the Warriors, first of all, if it doesn't work, they could just cut him, really. They don't need to. They, it's a one-year contract. They could just say, you're done. Go sign on yeah, another true. team and see see how you can do there. Um, but if it does work out, they have five All-Stars that can start in their starting lineup. So it's a really, really great move for them. And as you can imagine, Warriors fans felt pretty good about it. <laughs> they uh, tied with the Lakers for the most optimistic rating on 1-100. to 100. They, they rated at 89. So they were right there, almost 90. None of the teams rated them above 90. I, I can't imagine them having a better offseason than this. What 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 were Warriors fans expecting? Uh to to say 89 maybe maybe that just comes from people not liking um the demarcus cousins and his attitude i guess Uh, what do you Uh, think it has to be it has to be that i mean what else is there they couldn't have they couldn't have hoped for anything else it's just no there's no risk to me there's no risk it's just some rich guys some billionaires money and that's really the only thing you're risking so who cares about that Um, yeah i mean those those 11 percent or i guess it's not framed that way but but the people who who gave them a lower rating than that are probably recent warriors fans i I mean i hate to i don't mean to paint the entire fan base as bandwagoners that's not what i'm saying but i am saying there is a large section of that particular fan base that is in for and i know because i have very close friends who who are part of this fan base who are in for a very (laughs) rude awakening a few years from now when uh i mean i guess maybe they'll just go follow another team but but if they yeah. do stick with the team, you know, they just expect perfection now because they really are blessed following yeah. one of the greatest dynasties in, in NBA history. You should just tell them, I can't wait for you to be a Suns fan. Um, the obvious answer to who the most important addition was DeMarcus Cousins, DMC. One guy said, boogie, you bitch, which is funny. <laughs> uh, my favorite answer on all of these surveys came from a Warriors fans, though. They said the best addition... For the Warriors, this offseason was 
Mello signing with the Rockets. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I was curious. I wanted to ask you, like, if we circulated these surveys to every team, yeah, yeah. are Rockets fans? Do they have the common sense to be like one of the only couple of fan bases that would actually admit that they got worse this offseason, or are they still going to think that they got better? No, there's a cult. There's a cult of Mori. There's a there's a Daryl Mori cult. Yeah. And I, right, rightfully so. He's one of the best, maybe the best or second best general manager in the league. I, I mean, I guess top three at least. You can you can rate him top three. And he's never really had. A, I don't think he's ever had a losing season on the Rockets. Um, and there's just reason to believe that even though it doesn't make sense, maybe right now, uh, they have reasons to be optimistic. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe. Uh, are you trying to see who would be the most pessimistic? It's got to be maybe the Kings or the the Hawks, I guess. Yeah, but the Hawks are expecting it, right? Like the Hawks just brought the Hawks brought in four rookies. They're in that stage that we were in like four or five years ago, just starting the rebuild, where you're just excited to see. I don't know, like Trey Young and Amari Spellman shoot threes i guess like they're they're just excited to bring in pro they probably think they had a pretty good offseason like the bulls too teams that are obviously yeah. thinking it's just the kings have been tormented for like 15 years so i can well, see why team, it's waning on them a team like the hawks how they fill out the survey is entirely dependent on that one really good trey young game that happened in summer league <laughs> if that didn't happen they'd probably be a lot more pessimistic and i can relate to that i can totally relate to that because as a suns fan your opinion on how you feel about the Suns is all dependent on how well the young players played in the previous game. And I, I, I know you know this, but the day after a, a brutal Suns loss, like on Twitter or on Reddit, it's it's dark. It gets dark <laughs> for Suns fans. And I imagine that's the way it's going to be for Hawks uh, fans and Kings fans on, in the upcoming season. As you can imagine, the, the Warriors um, fans said they got better, uh, 87% of them. Uh, only 12% said about the same. And I actually think saying about the same is fair because how much better can you be than already the best? Well, we have only one person said worse. Yeah, only so one said worse, but we haven't even addressed it yet. What do you make of the fact that the Pelicans played better with Cousins off the floor last season? I mean, don't you think that an argument could be made that Boogie doesn't really move the needle all that much? Yeah, absolutely. I don't like DeMarcus Cousins. I've never wanted him in a Suns jersey. I know a lot of Suns fans were kind of hoping for that. Um, I just think that a guy like him does not actually play winning basketball. I think his attitude affects players around him, and uh, he, he's turnover prone. He gets a ton of turnovers. I think that he wants the ball in the post, and post offenses are not the most effective, at least as far as wins goes in the regular season. The thing is, is a lot of this changes in the playoffs where you kind of need a guy that can post up and uh i don't know it's it's just the rich get richer in a way because the warriors it just doesn't affect the warriors the same way it would affect another team if it works out for them he could play such a small role that that moves the needle in in a way that you needed to in order to be on the margins where you're sort of going for a championship it's you know i don't like him but this move makes a lot of sense for the warriors so it's it's a weird situation for them but i think you can't argue that they're about the same because they're they're still the best yeah that makes sense and that's what they're going for so how do they feel about the suns well they don't think about us they're don draper in this scenario they, they had no ideas a lot of people said i don't know what to say about the suns and and people even skipped this answer 66 percent of them said we got better 30 percent, i think the highest percent said about the same and only two people said we got worse so 
a fair a fair one there and they rated our off season at 60 out of 100 so and that's fair too right because it's a weird way to think about it like for a warriors fan to picture how important this off season was for the suns fans well no they can't really picture that because it's a whole different way to think about basketball yeah. <laughs> uh you know they're just in a different stage of of their fandom and to think about adding a couple rookies and Trevor Reza, that doesn't that wouldn't matter to them. So that's about it. So I would say, I mean, Kings fans are the most optimistic about the Suns, but they're the most pessimistic about themselves. Uh, Warriors and Lakers fans are the most optimistic about themselves, and Lakers, of course, are the most pessimistic about the Suns. So in a, in a weird way, I say that rivalry still kind of exists. <laughs> Maybe ever so slightly. So are we going to win any games against the Warriors? No. Come on. I, of course no, I want to. Probably not. I'm going to go with no, though. I th- <laughs> I'm going to say one and three, because why not? So what's your final? My final <laughs> tally is at six and ten. A slight improvement over a four and twelve mark last year. So then that would put me, I think I picked two more wins than you, so that would put me at eight and eight. Yeah, c- come so on. I think we're going hmm. <laughs> to... Come on. I know. You're right. <laughs> well, you said these surveys are a measure of rose-colored glasses and mine are basically dark red. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, I think it's possible. Yeah, it's it's possible. just very, very, very unlikely. Right. Uh, <laughs> Look, if the Suns can go 8-8 eight and eight against their own division, um, and then they've got, let's see, what, yeah. another 30 games against the Eastern Conference where the East sucks, maybe mm-hmm. go pl- above 500, maybe that's a pathway to like a 30... 30- seven to 41 win season of some sort which would be really good that would be really good for us all right we're well over an hour now (laughs) so thank you everyone for listening oh wow that was a really interesting conversation it's the first time we've really gotten into non-suns team uh news so hopefully this gives us an idea of what we're looking at this is uh you know a huge percentage of our games in the upcoming season uh and uh you know we're going to be talking about these teams more than any other teams because we play them the most. So anything else to add, Sam? Uh, no, that's it. I want basketball back. Uh, I need it in my life. And we'll be back with you guys next <laughs> week, hopefully talking a little bit more about the Suns uh, specifically. Yep. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us at, at the Timeline Pod. Um, check us out on uh, I have my own Twitter account as well hopefully Sam will get one soon and uh, oh I'm on the most or the last episode previous episode of the solar panel thanks to those guys for having me on it was really fun to have that conversation with them if you want to listen to it check it out and thanks for listening Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. 
They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.